Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English with you, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health. I'm joined again by my colleague, Dr. Josh Bloom, who is our Director of Chemical and Pharmaceutical Sciences, and just an all-around nice guy to talk to. I actually learned today, Josh, that you are an experienced and quite skilled piano player. So I'm, I, I learn new things about you every day. That's, that's awesome, man. Okay, I need to stop this right now. Uh, a, <laughs> a piano player is the guy who sat in the saloon <laughs> hanging away. Right? We're called pianists. So <laughs> don't be calling me a piano player. I, uh, I take back the gross insult I just leveled at you, Dr. Bloom. That was really insensitive of me. Yes, it was. I, the, the thing is, is that the word pianist, it, if you don't roll it off the tongue just right, it comes across as something else. And I was trying to avoid that. So, And what uh, could that possibly be? I, uh, you have to use your imagination. <laughs> well, in any event, in any event, yes. enough of our, enough of our uh, Friday shenanigans. So we've got two well, more don't stories. You, don't you want to, don't you want to get people to listen to my, my performance? Oh, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me point this out. So there is a performance of Josh on YouTube. It's actually from the 1970s, but it was posted in 2012. But if you just, if you just Google Josh Bloom Rochester, it's going to come up and you get to hear Josh's beautiful uh, music, you know, this. With the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, I should say. Yes, this is not him in his basement playing uh, Rainbow right. in the Dark. This is this is true uh, true art. The scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I believe it. I I, I don't like performing, and I find myself up on the stage with a major orchestra, like. And and to make it even worse, it was a Mozart piano concerto, and Mozart is known for, let's say, one to two minutes introduction by orchestra before the soloist comes in. So I had to sit there, hoping not to throw up, pass out, or both, for two minutes. It was very bad. You survived, though. That was good. I did, and I have one of the great stories of all time which I will not be sharing with the public, but I will tell you later. <laughs> I, people love that when you say, I'm going to tell, tell someone else something offline that you can't hear. They just want to know. They want to hear well, the gossip. Send me enough money and I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to actually link to that performance when we, when we post this episode, because I do want people to see. It's good that people know that we have lives outside of uh, – outside of our work, that we're not just uh, Monsanto shields. We actually have hobbies. No, so, Monsanto paid for my piano. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can tell that we are deeply hurt when people call us Monsanto shields. It's obviously yeah. false, but we just make fun of it instead of taking it seriously because it's dumb. In any case, we've got two new stories to talk about from our, our newsletter. It's called the ACSH Dispatch. You can go to our website, acsh.org, to get on this newsletter so you can know what we're talking about. But we've got two stories. The first one 
is a piece that I wrote called Ukraine War Exposes Folly of Anti-GMO Protectionism. And then we've got a, a little little lighter story that Josh wrote. And this is, uh, I love this title, Josh. <laughs> NPR likes giant flying spiders that land on your head. I beg to differ. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to get into both of these. But let's start with the more serious one. Of course, everyone is following the news coming out of Ukraine. It's changing almost every day. There's loss of life. There's all kinds of destruction. There's economic damage being done to to the the economy globally. But there may be a silver lining in all of this. So let's let's talk about the situation first. So not long after the fighting broke out, Russia capped its exports of wheat. It's one of the major wheat producers globally. It's in the top five. And uh, they were exporting too much. As far as they were concerned, they were afraid they weren't going to be able to, to secure their own food supply uh, nationally. So they cut back their exports. And then, of course, um, they invaded Ukraine. And all of the agricultural production in Ukraine takes place in the center of the country. So Russia comes in from the east and they fan out to take all of these major cities in that part of the country. And so uh, you can't the farmers that are in the middle of the country, they can't get the fertilizer and the seed and all of the inputs they need to grow their crop. And even if they do have some of that, they're not going to be able to export the crop because there's a war going on, right? All of the port cities are either the, the, the focus of fighting or they've been taken over by the Russian army. So this creates a huge um, uh, sh- uh, supply issue globally, right? You have wheat prices exploding. Even as I'm, uh, as I'm talking, they've, they've gone up uh, seriously, there are growers in America even who are switching to different crops because it's too expensive to grow uh, wheat and they can't guarantee that there's going to be buyers for it because the price is so high. So there's a lot of scrambling going on. Um, we will see food price increases in the U.S., but in places like North Africa, um, it's a really severe shortage. So there's people that are going hungry because of this. It's no joke. It's very, very serious. Um but to the silver lining, the, the good thing here, if there is a good thing to this, it's that the European Union, which has historically been very much an anti-GMO part of the world, is starting to realize um, that there are consequences to banning certain types of technology or banning food products that are produced with that technology. So one of the things that they have um, they've done is they've relaxed some of the regulations on the crops that um, that consumers can import. So they they consume a lot of uh, GMO soy, for example. That is that they have it imported from the United States or elsewhere. Um, but in order to do that, their regulators have to do a very thorough um, analysis of whatever crop's going to be imported. And because we know the technology is safe, it comes back every time and they say this this genetically engineered crop is safe for human consumption. It doesn't pose a risk to the environment. It's, it's, it's not a rubber stamp. They do a very thorough review of it, but every time it comes back positive. Now, what, they're, what they've done or what they're about to do is they're going to lift that, that restriction. And if people need to import uh, corn, for example, to, to feed the animals that people eat later on down the line, they're just going to let them do that because wherever the crop is grown, like in the United States, it's already been approved by the appropriate regulatory authorities. So I think that's the first lesson here. And, and Josh, I want your input on this. But basically, when the rubber meets the road 
if you have a silly ideology, uh, it's going to give way to the realities of the situation. If you need to feed your population, then all of your virtue signaling about being pro-organic or being anti-GMO, it's just going to go away because hungry people um, do really uh, radical things sometimes. So you want to keep them fed. What, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this? Well, it, it didn't do um, a whole lot of good uh, to the children who were going blind because uh, they lacked vitamin A. Golden rice certainly wasn't accepted. Uh, I seem to remember that uh, fields were burned by some of these nut job activists. So I, I guess it's okay to um, to maintain your orthodoxy when when you're not hungry, but when other people are, are hungry, then, then you know maybe it's not so important. Is that cynical enough? You know, I it, I think it is cynical, but it's appropriate because what you said is 100% correct. So, for anyone that doesn't know, golden rice is this. Um, vitamin A fortified rice variety. It's going to be grown primarily in Bangladesh and the Philippines. They've both approved it. I believe they're actually um, distributing the rice in the Philippines now. And this is 25 years down the line. It took way too long, um, primarily because of groups like Greenpeace. They would uh, they would find field trials of of this crop and others, and they would take weed whackers to it. Um, and and the the point being is they're saying, look, this is such a problem that we have to destroy this, you know. So vandalism, destruction of property. They actually did this uh, last week with a shipment of wheat in Europe. They thought it was GMO corn, <laughs> you know. So what time to make a what better time to make a protest stance than uh, when there's not enough food for for people to eat? So they dumped out this this. It was like fifteen thousand tons of wheat or something massive like that. Uh, but the difference now is that. People are saying, hey, that's for us. <laughs> so I think I think your point is perfectly valid, you know, and it, and it just underscores what I said, which is, you know, we're, we're going to be virtuous and we're going to have our, our ideals until our tummies start to rumble. And uh, <laughs> then we need food. You know, it's it's absurd. Well, Spike Lee talked about that in the what 1980s, do the right thing. I think you'd have to append that title now and do the right thing for yourself <laughs> and screw everybody else. Maybe that's going to be a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is saddening, but I think it's sort of a self-correction mechanism. You know, you can deny reality, you can reject technology uh, for so long, but then the consequences come due. And, uh, you just have to fess up, you know, you can only, you can only live in this fairy tale world for so long. And that goes to the, the final point I wanted to make before we move on to your much, your much funner spider story is that Europe has had this, it's been, it's been close to implementing this plan called the farm to fork for a long time. It's part of their broader green deal to be more eco-friendly, but as a part of this farm to fork situation the the plan was to convert 25% of their agricultural land to organic production to cut pesticide use by 50% <laughs> uh and they were going to do all this by 
2035, I want to say. So before this whole situation in Ukraine broke out, this was always misguided. Frankly, it was a bit of a fairy tale because all it was going to do, it was going to cut their food production in Europe, which means they were going to have to import food from other parts of the world, which means those places have to expand their production, which which means globally you're going to have the same amount of um, environmental footprint for, for food production. So the whole program was was ridiculous. It was cooked up by activist groups and politicians that are ideological, um, that have the same sympathies ideologically. But then you get to this where there's a real, there's a real shortage of wheat. You know, there's this, this trade war that's broken out as a result of um, the sanctions. This has real consequences for everybody. And so I, I hope, you know, I hope I want the whole situation to resolve. I don't want, I don't want needless death and bombs, going off and all this stuff, but maybe this will um, incentivize a permanent change in how people think about food production. That's, that's my hope. So your cynicism is justified. Maybe something positive comes out of it. Well, I'm not done. Um, (laughs) You know, depending on who you ask, um, you know, climate change, carbon dioxide pollution, et cetera, you know, has, different amount of importance for different people from the, the, you know, the world's going to drown tomorrow. So we better do something now to it doesn't exist. And uh, let me just point out that um, ground zero for uh, the climate change movement is probably Europe which makes absolutely wonderful sense that Germany would shut down its nuclear power plants, which aren't giving off any carbon, and start um, burning wood like it's uh, 2000 BC. Now, how stupid is this? Again, this is orthodoxy versus common sense. And just because I'm in a particularly foul mood today, uh, I just thought I'd bring up my favorite title of the thousands of things I've written, and it's called Drowning in Morons. Well, I think, I think, I think it's appropriate, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stupidity I, I read about every day is mind-boggling and just... There's not, you really can't do anything other than laugh at it. That That's, that's true enough. And if for anyone who's not familiar, Josh is referring to, especially Germany, but other countries in Europe have taken sort of an anti-nuclear power stance, which is the, you know, moronic to, to build on what you were saying, because it's, it's, um, it's carbon-free energy. So it's not going to contribute to climate change. The technology is incredibly safe these days. Um, and, you know, m- most relevant to our current situation, it would make Europe less dependent on Russia's oil and natural gas exports. So if if they had made a sustained effort to transition more to nuclear, um, this, you know, this may not be as big of a problem as it is today. But but again, I, I think, you know, they've just forced themselves into a corner and there's only a few ways out of it. So hopefully, hopefully things get better. Stay tuned. Things are changing every day, as I said, but we'll we'll revisit it 
in future stories, I'm sure. But to, to take everybody into the weekend, Josh, let's bring some levity to this very, very dark situation. And I want to talk about flying spiders and specifically <laughs> this article that you wrote, which is a response to an article in NPR. And the, fr- from NPR, like the, the the framing of it was like, oh yeah, there's these spiders. They're you know they're going to be in new places, particularly up the eastern seaboard. They look weird, but don't worry. You know the birds will eat them. It'll be fine. So, what was your response to this? Well, you know, I'm you know hiding behind my ornery uh, behavior or um, persona. I'm actually a, a, a fairly serious naturalist. I, I got that from my mother. And, you know, uh, the birds and the bees and the plants and the water, you know, this, this stuff is important to me. So uh, it, it's not like I'm saying trash the environment because it's really quite the opposite is, is what I believe. That said, there comes a point where when, when some species is here or there, either endangered or happens to wander into a new territory, when you just got to kill the damn thing. And NPR predictably was saying that these Juro spiders, which have a number of undesirable properties, uh, for instance, they can fly hundreds of miles by spinning a web into a parachute. Uh, they're the diameter of a Campbell's soup can. And take a look at one of these damn things, and good luck sleeping that night. So these are going to be flying in, in millions up the East Coast, where they're going to land on my head. So... NPR can spin this any way they want, but I want the damn things dead. And I don't really care how poisonous I have to get to, to, to make them dead. So um, don't be telling me that giant flying spiders are okay or actually beneficial, as they, as they point out in the article, because they provide food for birds. Well, birds have plenty to eat. We don't need giant flying spiders to add to the bird's platter. I'll put out a damn bird feeder. Then, then the spiders can stay in Georgia where they, where they landed. So, um, I don't know. It just, I was astounded how they, the, the, this spin they put on Juro spiders so I had to make fun of it, of course. I'm, I'm glad you did. There's some zingers in your article that I want to talk about. But let me just stress that I 100% agree with you. And, uh, and here's why. I have a young son at home. And, uh, of course, his safety is paramount to me. And uh, last summer, uh, just after he was born, I got out of the shower and I'm drying off. And my wife walks up to me seemingly out of nowhere and smacks me on the shoulder and the neck, which didn't feel terrific. And I'm like, what What the hell was that for? And she's like, there was a giant spider on you. And my only reaction was to smack it. 
And if I had to hit you in the process, then, you know, collateral damage. <laughs> so um, I found another spider of the, like the same one that had apparently crawled on me. And uh, it was gross looking. It was big. It had all these weird colors on it. I don't know if it was poisonous or not, but you can, you can believe that I smashed it. It was. All spiders little- are venomous. Okay. Okay. There you go. The naturalist says it was probably poisonous. Not probably. So I smashed this thing. And the very next day, this is beautiful salesmanship. Uh, this guy shows up at my door. He's like, Hey, my name's Fred. I'm with uh, ABC pest control. And we're, we're going around the neighborhood, just making sure people have their pests under control. And I said, you have a new customer. <laughs> so I, this, this company comes around every couple of months they blast my property with with safe pesticides. They're not a threat to you know any other animals or to to my family, but they keep the hornets away from the grass. They keep the spiders out of my baby's room, and uh, you know so maybe this airs on the side of precaution a little bit. But I don't want giant spiders the size of soup cans around my property. <laughs> and tell tell people about why these things are supposedly not poisonous because it or not venomous because it does not offer me much comfort as a parent. Well, I, I really haven't checked the science on it, but there are two reasons. First of all, even though these things are the size of a volleyball, apparently their, um, their mouths are too small to bite you. Now, that's... That's lovely, but I don't want to, like, run that experiment, really, uh, because maybe uh, maybe they're not too small. Uh, and also, um, I looked up the venom, and uh, it, it, as far as venom and toxins go, let's just say it isn't too awful. There are certainly plenty of spiders that have venom a whole lot worse than this. I looked at the chemical. It, it, it doesn't look as bad as you know, like black widow venom or anything like that. But that's another experiment I don't want to run. So let's say the spider is, has a really big bunch of jaws and can bite me. Uh, then... I'm basically a guinea pig for the venom in humans, which is not pleasing. Uh, but you know, it's it, even um, you know, even in the absence of that, if I see this thing floating down in front of me, that's it. My heart, my heart stops, and that's it. I'm, ter- I'm taking a dirt nap the next day. I mean. Look at the picture of these damn things. They're terrifying. And they make webs that are pretty much the size of a tennis court. Do you like walking into spider webs? I Not don't. especially. No. I am absolutely terrified of them. And, and I, I probably shouldn't be admitting this, but uh, when it's time to go up the walk to my house at night, I made my wife go first. In case, in case there's a spider web, it really doesn't bother her that much. <laughs> I um, 
I, I, I sympathize to a certain extent because, because let me read the description of these things, which we never, we never really did. So they're called Joro spiders. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, a Joro spider can grow to be about three inches long, including a large bulbous body with bright yellow stripes. Its underbelly has distinctive red markings and it weaves large webs that look as if they're spun from gold and silk, as you alluded to. It gets its name from Joragumo, which in Japanese folklore <laughs> can turn itself into a beautiful woman to prey on unsuspecting men. <laughs> and your your response to this was, it sounds a lot like online dating. <laughs> it, it sounds identical to online dating. And try it for a while and try and deny that, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... In other words, the description they set up of this thing, they're like, it's big and colorful, which is kind of creepy. And then the Japanese gave it this name that means it can prey on men. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, I, 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 it's funny that it's like, there's such a contrast between what they're saying and what they want you to think they're saying. But if there's, if there's one serious point that maybe we can pull out of this to make it a little bit sciencey is that, um, the pesticides that I'm happily using to keep my my pest control, my pest problem under control, um, are very important, uh, public health measures, you know? So maybe keeping spiders off your property is a small thing, but protecting your crops from, from pests is a big deal because they'll eat it before we can eat it. (laughs) And you can control, um, animals that carry all kinds of infectious agents and so forth. So, um, it's important, you know, this is a lighthearted example, but, uh, you know, Thank God we have technologies like these so we can protect ourselves when it's necessary. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's lighthearted, but it's also not. Um, long ago, I'm talking at least five years ago, I wrote a piece called Environmentalist Killed My Friend. And it had to do with um, mosquito spraying in the community I live in and how people got so hysterical about it that the village decided not to spray, even though the entire New York area, you know, 15 million people, everybody else was spraying, but the 10 block community that I lived in decided not to spray. But one of my best friends uh, was fighting colon cancer, was immune compromised, and got bit by a mosquito carrying West Nile. Um, During the time he spent in the hospital in a coma, he was unable to take his chemotherapy. And he died, I don't know, less than a year after that. So um, it's not all amusing, is it? It's not amusing at all. And there's a, we have a mutual friend, Dr. Henry Miller, who uh, was a former uh, regulator at the Food and Drug Administration. And he's written in past articles that pesticides are arguably one of the most important public health developments in history uh, for the kinds of uh, reasons that you just brought up. You know, you can kill insects that vector deadly diseases and that cannot be overstated and you can kill um, a fungus that is uh, carcinogenic that if it gets into the food supply uh, food supply it can cause 
very serious cancer. And uh, we're not talking about, you know, big companies trying to profit off of deadly chemicals. Um, the, maybe the proper way to look at it is the companies that develop these products that keep people alive and healthy um, deserve to be paid for those. It's, it's, it's really that simple, you know? So I don't want to, I don't want to belabor the point and, and, you know, go into a whole new diatribe on the importance of, of pesticides. Uh, but it is a, an, an important take-home lesson. And, you know, the likelihood that these spiders are going to, you know, kill people is very unlikely. But I think it gives us an opportunity to talk about, again, the importance of technology. And not everything deserves to live. <laughs> That's true. Ted Bundy, uh, creepy spiders, uh, any other kind of critter that comes into your house or your property uninvited. I think that list is is sufficient. Maybe maybe we should add to it at some point, Josh. You could add the middle of the Yankees batting order to that. And, um, <laughs> that uh, you know we don't want to we don't want to go that far astray. I um I I don't have too much empathy for you there because I'm a lifelong Oakland A's fan and we basically um, create you know develop talent and then we sell it to a team on the East Coast for uh, draft picks and minor league players. And that's just been what we do for 30 years. So boo-hoo to you and your giant payroll. <laughs> well, we take the giant payroll and buy bad players with it <laughs> and, and, and finishes a 500 team. So how's that working out? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to start a new podcast to talk about baseball, but uh, there you go. Thank you everyone for, for joining us again. As I said, if you want to get these newsletters so you can read the articles we're talking about, it's acsh.org. Type in your email address and you'll get uh, every email we send out. We really appreciate you listening and reading our stuff. And we'll be back next week with uh, a fresh batch of articles to talk about. We will see you next time. 